You're listening to audio from The Village Church. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit tvcresources.net. Good morning, church. Morning. My name's Christina Leonardi, uh, and I serve in student ministry, and I'm going to be reading, yes, 10th grade girls. Um, So I'm going to be reading our passage for this morning, and it's found in Jonah chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. He paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, TVC. If I haven't got to meet you, my name is Trevor Joy. I serve as one of the pastors and elders here overseeing our sending department. And this morning, we have a really special treat. Hopefully, you know by now, a big part of our 2030 vision is to see 10 unreached people groups reached with the gospel of Jesus Christ. To do this, it's going to take more than just our staff. It's going to take a church that's committed to seeing the gospel go to the places of greatest need. There's roughly 600 people groups around the world comprised of about 3 billion people who have little or no access to the gospel. And today our hope is that you leave more informed and engaged about what God's doing around the world and together we are more committed as a church to see that number decrease. So one of the ways we're doing that is we brought in a really special partner, his name is Steve Richardson. He's president of Pioneers International, one of our key strategic sending agencies that we've partnered with to do this around the world. And he's gonna be sharing on the state of the world and what God's doing and my hope is really that God begins to stir up both us as a church and you individually for how we can take part in what he's doing around the world. So let's gather and let's give a good TVC family welcome to our friend Steve Richardson. Good morning. And Arlene and I are just thrilled to be back here at the Village Church and I think of you as a gospel lighthouse to the nations of the world. And our purpose uh, this Sunday, and I think next Sunday as well, is to be the people of the lifted eyes. Jesus said to his disciples, lift up your eyes. Look at the harvest, it's ripe. When I go jogging or running, I used to call it running, I think more and more it's jogging or loping. (laughs) I find myself kind of looking down often at the ground in front of me, kind of playing safety, making sure I'm not stumbling, and I have to remind myself, lift up your eyes, Steve. Look at the rising sun, look at the eagle overhead, the gorgeous panorama of what God is doing on a bigger scale around you. So this morning I have a question for you. Uh, How many of us like surprises? Let's see the hands here. I think that's about an eighth of us. And I love that eighth. (laughs) I think you're like, Steve, I'm trusting you here. But the rest of you are thinking, okay, Steve, now wait a minute, TLI, too little information. What kind of surprise are you talking about? Would it be like the one you had when you were a boy and there was a nine-foot python caught in your bedroom? And it had been killing our newborn kittens one by one and transporting them down the hall and laying them on the toy basket in my bedroom and making a little noise and that eventually awakened me. I mean, you can see it. By the way, the snake is on an overturned canoe. Don't confuse the snake with the canoe. 
When I've shown this picture a couple times, someone came up and said, wow, what a fat snake that was. And it's true, there are a couple of bulges in that snake, but it's, it's, it's not the canoe. So, no, Steve, I'm not sure if we like surprises or not, but the Bible itself and God's redemptive plan is just chuck full of surprises. If there's anybody who's a master of surprise, it's God himself, and I'm learning to worship him by a new name. I've heard there are about 950 names for God in the scriptures. I'm adding a 951st. God the surpriser. And I'm becoming a student of surpriseology. God's unexpected and amazing ways as part of his redemptive plan. So turn with me. We've already been reading from the book of Jonah, which is a power-packed little book. And it's sandwiched, if that helps, between Obadiah and Micah. And we're going to just see how far we get in uh, exploring a few of the surprises that our friend Jonah encountered on his journey and what we can learn from them. So the word of the Lord, as we've just heard, came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish, the opposite direction. He went down to Joppa where he found a ship bound for that port after paying the ferry went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the presence of the Lord or the mission of the Lord. So the first surprise here is the mission that God gave to Jonah. It blew his categories. God had a bigger and more radical and unwelcome, frankly, agenda for Jonah, who already had his work cut out for him, being a prophet to these obstinate people there in Israel. And yet God said to Jonah one day, hey, I've got a different assignment for you for a period of time. I want you to go to Nineveh 500 miles away. The ultimate pagan capital, just, just the symbol of brutality and of tyranny and of anti God and of paganism, founded centuries earlier by Nimrod. You can read a bit about him in Genesis chapter 10. A great hunter and a warrior and a killer of men. Maybe 600,000 people in that city. You know, it talks about 120,000 who don't know their left from their right, meaning possibly children. And scholars say this was a massive city in its time, just an amazing place, known for torture, the Assyrian kingdom known for its, its terrorism, basically, for burning people alive. And decades later, maybe Jonah already knew that Assyria would be God's instrument to punish uh, his people for their, dis- their centuries worth of unfaithfulness and disobedience. So God's call literally rocked Jonah's world and he was not a happy camper. And I don't think it was because it was 500 miles away and it'd be hard journey and things, you know, things that might, might, might give us pause when God calls us, the discomforts of being in another country, learning a language. No, for Jonah, it was a really deep concern. Is God's grace really going to go that far to people who deserve it so little? And so he, he's not passive-aggressive. He actually like goes down and he gets a ship and he goes the other direction. He said, I'm not part of this plan. And off he goes. 
Nineveh. Well, in 1962, I was just a few months old, and my parents headed toward their, their call and their destination. This is a picture of my first overseas mission trip. Uh, hard to believe in my lifetime, we even traveled by ships. I mean, I don't think of myself as being that old, but we got on this <clears throat> ship called the Oriana. It's long since been decommissioned, and off we went. Left Vancouver and headed via Hawaii and New Zealand and Australia and found ourselves in the highlands of New Guinea where a few of my parents' friends who had preceded them, they, it was like this group of friends that said, let's go and let's help, let's reach the tribes of this world's second largest island. Looks like a Tyrannosaurus Rex sunbathing just north of Australia on the equator. And let's find the lost tribes there and take the gospel to them. Well, Dave and Margie Martin and others said to dad and mom as they got off the airplane, uh, we just heard about this tribe down in the southern swamps. They're called the Sawi, S-A-W-I. We don't know much about them. They live in tree houses. They might be cannibals, headhunters. Who knows? It's really hot and steamy down there. Tons of mosquitoes. It's not nice and cool like it is up here or 5,000 feet high in the mountains. Would you be happy to take the gospel to them? And mom and dad looked at each other. I like to think they glanced at me, at least briefly as well. <laughs> and they said, yes, Dave, that's exactly the kind of thing we would love to do. That's what God has called us to do. And so they uh, took another flight, landed at another place where another missionary from Florida named John McCain uh, had established a beachhead just a year or two earlier. And dad and John went in and they made the first contact with five or six Sawi warriors that they encountered in the jungle, and they got their help building a little house about 20 feet by 20 feet at the junction of two rivers, <coughs> the Nor and the Tundu. And they, using sign language, tried to communicate. So my dad said, in about 10 days' time, I'm coming back with my wife, my little baby. We want to live here in this house. We want to learn your language. And uh, would you be willing to move out of the jungle? And he wasn't sure if they understood. But 10 days later, after returning to where mom and I were and getting some supplies, uh, they loaded up this canoe with some brave paddlers and warriors from the enemy tribe, the Kaigar tribe, paddled all day from sunrise until sunset through the network of rivers and rounded the last bend. Here's a picture that dad took from further back in the canoe of me enjoying that day uh, out, on, out on the rivers. And as the sun was setting, we rounded the last bend and dad realized they had understood because there were 400 fully armed warriors crowded on the bank waiting to welcome us. And you can, this is a slide that he took. It's mildewed over decades in the tropics. Uh, but you can see some of the spears there pointing heavenward. And there were no women and children to be seen because they were still hiding in the jungle waiting, what, waiting to see what was going to happen when these extraterrestrials landed here in their, their domain. Dad reached back, saying to mom, it's too late now, we're committed. <laughs> the canoe slid to a stop in the mud at the feet of these warriors. He picked me up out of mom's arms. She followed as they made their way, slipping and sliding up through the mud. Not knowing that in the Sawi culture, if a man came from another group with no weapons in his hands, carrying a baby, it was a guarantee he was coming in peace. And as they made their way up, this sea of human humanity just closed in around us. They were reassured. One of the chiefs shouted a signal, Lisa, and those long drums started to boom, 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 and they started to dance around us. Dad later described it as if he felt like we were at the eye of a human hurricane. 
And ever slowly, they swept us up to the little notch pole that led us up into the house uh, where I grew up as a kid. And the Sawi throng, by that time, the women had come out of the jungle because they knew everything was going to be okay. They were joining in the dancing. The kids were starting to dance. And they literally danced around our house. I slept through parts of it, at least, for three days and three nights uh, without stopping. It was our, our baptism into the amazing world of the Sawi people, a people that I grew up with and that I hold extremely dear to my heart. And it was an amazing, strange world. In Orlando, Arlene and I live now. Uh, you know, we've got Disney World and Universal Studios and SeaWorld and various other attractions. Wasn't a whole lot to do out there in the jungle. The big attraction was the little white baby being bathed. <laughs> you can tell I'm kind of enjoying the attention here. Mom was a nurse and she learned how to uh, speak five, five or six different languages, but in this picture, I think I'm the one on the left here. <laughs> and I'm looking pretty well fed, aren't I? Because, you know, when you grow up on crocodile meat and fresh live termites, and when you can just pop these grubs in your mouth anytime you want to, uh, I mean, there's, on that particular day, I must have been extra hungry. It's, it's like biting into the Michelin Man and all that cholesterol-filled juice just squirts out into your mouth, and it's like, ah, this is so wonderful. But the Sawi lived in tree houses 40 or 50 feet off the surface of the, of the swamp. Because why? Because fewer mosquitoes, because it's, it's just like swamp, you can't build a house on the ground, but mostly because they fought with each other all the time. It was man against man. It was, it was, it was clan against clan. It was village against village, and it was tribe against village, just constant animosity. But maybe most shocking of all, after realizing these people were also cannibals and headhunters, my dad was learning the language, and as he began to explain, explain the story of Jesus, in uh, this special house they called the man house, it's where the warriors would gather and plan their next raid or their next hunting expedition. Uh, and as he unpacked the, basically what is to us the gospel message, he came to the part where Jesus was betrayed by a man named Judas. And then a ripple of laughter started to float around the room and people were slapping each other on the backs and a man named Mahayan there through the smoke and over the grub said, tell us more about Judas betraying this man Jesus to death. And dad said, you want to know more about Jesus, not Judas? He said, no, tell us about Judas. He sounds like one of us. I'd love to promise my daughter in marriage to a man like Judas. And dad said, why is that? He said, didn't you say he betrayed his friend to death? We do that. When we encounter someone from another group out in the, the jungle, we don't necessarily kill them on the spot. We ask them to be a friend and an ambassador between our villages and try to gain their trust so that sometime we invite them to a feast and at the moment of truth, we start reaching for our weapons. The signal goes around and then that man is killed and eaten. They called it tui asanaiman, to do with a man as you would do with a pig. Tui means pig. To do as with a pig. And dad could hardly believe, like, am I really hearing this? Well, <clears throat> four villages had moved in around us. They wanted to be close to us, but they didn't want to be close to each other. All kinds of battles were breaking out, and dad was <clears throat> getting used to rushing out and grabbing grabbing uh, bows and arrows out of people's hands and trying to restore peace and 
risking his life in the process. I remember seeing this happen many times. And uh, finally he said to them, you're going to have to make peace. We came to bring you a message of peace, but our presence here is causing a lot of injuries and bloodshed. And if you won't listen, we'll have to pack up and go somewhere else where people want to hear the message. And they didn't want that to happen. They desperately wanted us to stay. So dad didn't know it, but that night there was, there was a lot of consultation going on among the elders in the village of Kamur. And the next morning, as dad was <clears throat> studying language with his language friend, this, this friend of ours named Adi, he heard a terrible noise and he thought, oh no, here goes another battle. But he rushed out. This time, just in time to see a very different sight. And this time, it was a man who had grabbed his little newborn baby boy from the, eyes, from the arms of the child's mother, his wife. Tree, uh, tears were streaming down her cheeks. She threw herself in the mud and said, why does it have to be us? And he ran with that baby over the logs and through the mud from the village of Kamur over to the village of Hainam, their enemy, and turned the child over. And dad turned to Adi and said, what's happening here, Adi? Adi said, well, you've been telling us we have to make peace, right? Dad said, yes. He said, well, I don't know what it's like where you come from, but here, there's only one way we can make peace. That is by giving one of our own babies to the enemy. Dad said, are they going to hurt that baby? Adi said, no, not at all, because the peace will only last as long as he lives. He'll be adopted into one of the families there. They will take as good care of him as they can because if he falls out of a treehouse and dies in the thorns below or gets bit by a death adder and dies half an hour later or falls into the Kronkel River and gets eaten by a crocodile, then the warfare can resume without notice at any time because everything hinges on his life. Mom had been watching from the porch. Dad rushed up. They started comparing notes. I mean, talk about strange, but also what? Strangely familiar. Two parties at war. One party wanting so much to have peace that he's willing to give his son his only son, just like Cayo just had, in order to become a basis for peace with the enemy. Why, that's the story of the gospel. He ever lives to make intercession for us. He has paid the price so that we can enjoy peace with our creator forevermore. Dad spent a few days learning a few more vocabulary words. What's the term for this, this baby? Tarotim. Bialkodon Tarotim. God's peace child. He went back into that same warrior house with largely the same group of men and started in on the story again, but this time he added a detail. When he came to the part about Jesus being betrayed to death, which, by the way, we just remembered a couple of weeks ago, remember? He, had, he, said, he said, this was Miaokodon's Tarop team. And this time there wasn't laughter and backslapping. Back that same man, Mahayan, through the smoke, said, wait a minute, Duandan. You told us this story before. Are you saying that Jesus was a peace child? Dad said, yes. He said, why didn't you tell us that the first time? <laughs> <laughs> and Dad said, I didn't realize that was an important detail. Mahayan said, important, it makes all the difference in the world. The worst thing anybody can do is betray a peace child to death. We call it tarop gaman, means shredding the peace. And all of a sudden, it's as if my parents could see the spiritual scales just falling from the spiritual eyes of person after person sitting there in that house. And one of the first people to come to my dad was a, a warrior named Hato. He only had one, one good eye left. The other had actually literally been pierced by an arrow in a battle and brought it out, and he, he gazed into my, my dad's eyes uh, one evening, uh, and he said, you know, <clears throat> Tuan Don, your words make my liver quiver. 
Dad said, tell me, Hato, what do you mean, what do you mean by that? He said, well, we, we saw we, when we give a peace child, we, the warriors on the receiving end, they gather and they, one by one, they put their hands on this child and <clears throat> one by one, we say, I accept this baby as a basis for peace between us and the enemy. And I want to do that with the ultimate peace child that you're telling us about. Can you tell Miyakodon that I want to do that? My dad had the priceless privilege of sharing with Hato. The Hato, you can do it yourself. God knows your liver. And he hears your heart, as we would say. And you can express through faith in prayer that you want God's peace child to secure your eternal peace. And Hato said, I want to do that. Can my four wives and my family also do that? And dad said, bring your whole family. And it was the beginnings of an amazing breakthrough. And as a kid, I had a front row seat to the power, to the truth of Romans 1.16, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe. First for the Jew, but not stopping there, going to the entire world, including the Sawi people buried there in the jungles of New Guinea. And they started coming to faith in large numbers relative to the size of their people group. <clears throat> and they got so excited, they said, we want to build a worship center. So they built what I think to this day is maybe the largest thatch-roofed structure in the history of the world. You could have 1,100 worshipers gathering under that. And I grew up climbing up and taking in the view from the steeple there. But 50 years later, I realized, hey, we're coming up on the 50th anniversary of when mom and dad carried me as a baby in. And, and why don't we go back? And I talked to my, my brothers, my two brothers and my dad, and we organized a trip. And one of my brothers over there in Indonesia had contact with one of the elders and had a brief conversation. We didn't know what to expect, but I'm, we're going to play a little short clip from a video called Never the Same. It's about a 15-minute long video. It was hard to decide which part of it because it's so good. You can find it on Vimeo or YouTube. But here rolls our reunion with the Sawi people 50 years after they first received the gospel message. Joining my two brothers, Shannon and Paul, my dad just turned 77, and this is his first time back in many, many years. So for our family, for my brothers and my dad and I, this is the trip of a lifetime. So now we climb. All we do is climb. And we'll just keep on climbing. Until the day we die Until the day on this very river. And a couple of, three of these guys were actually the actual paddlers from that time. It's, I couldn't believe this. <laughs> he's so proud because he said we gave them to the Sawi. Yeah, they're real proud because they said they gave up the mom and dad and gave them to the Sawi. <laughs> <laughs> They're enemy tribes. So not kind of, so. Yeah. 
her father was one of the paddlers, and he he died, so she's taking his place. She's these, taking his place. These two women are the daughters of the paddlers who brought oh, okay. mom and dad, and they have their weapons in their canoes here to reenact the fact that they brought their weapons uh, because they were heading into enemy territory. So each person is here with a meaning. There's symbolism in each person's presence on this little uh, flotilla of three canoes. Just they're taking us to the same place where we landed. Yeah, to the very same spot. Isn't that a little foretaste of heaven? <coughs> and you know, the Sawi people have formed a literal alliance with the four other tribes surrounding them that they used to try to eliminate mutually, mutual annihilation for the purpose of taking the, the gospel to yet other people groups that still need to hear the gospel. <coughs> and you might think, okay, but that happened like 60 years ago. Uh, we, it hasn't the job been accomplished, but I, I'm here to tell you this morning and to remind you that the, that the task is not yet finished. There, there are like 17,000 people groups all around the world, and 7,500 of those approximately are considered unreached people groups, meaning they have very little opportunity to hear the gospel message, even today, with hardly any Christians, hardly any Bible in many cases, access to the Bible. We have such a rich fare of some of the world's best teaching in the world here. And there are hundreds of millions of people, over three billion people around the world, who don't get that opportunity and that privilege. And virtually no churches available, in some cases, none at all. And think of India, for example, over 2,000 unreached people groups there in India, 1.3 billion people, or the country of Chad, if you, I wonder if you could find that on an unmarked map, with its 150 people groups, 115 of which are unreached, and 65 of them not even engaged today. In 2022, the Caucasus between the Black Sea and the Caspian Sea, 50 to 60 unreached people groups. Dagestan has at least 34 unreached people groups. Close to my own heart is the island of Sumatra. I've been there many times. It's about the size of California. California has about 40 million people. Sumatra has 50 million people. The island of Sumatra has 79 different languages and people groups there. 49 of them are still unreached today. My sister-in-law is from one of them. Her people group has about 8 million people in it. There may be 1,000 followers of Jesus among those 8 million people. Can you imagine, for every believer, 8,000 people who have absolutely no clue that Jesus died on the cross for them 2,000 years ago? And that eternal salvation and fellowship with their creator is available to them today because they've simply never heard the message. Well, another surprise is the messenger. Okay, who's <laughs> this Jonah? I mean, Jonah, son of Amittai, he's from this little town, Gath Heifer. I mean, did anything good ever come out of Gath Heifer? And he already had his work cut out for him with Israel. And much less, and even more, he didn't want the job. We often think that God is only going to use volunteers, but sometimes he reached down and he conscripts us. And he says, you know what? I know you're not thinking in these categories. And I know it's going to be really taking you out of your comfort zone. 
but I want you to do something that you would never have expected. I remember there was this lady that worked out there in the tribes and she had <coughs> braces on her legs and she had, she had stilts and, and I thought, <coughs> or, or crutches, and I thought, wow, how did she get here? And she had polio when she was like five and a Chinese evangelist spoke at the little church that, near Spokane where she was growing up. And she responded, but afterward, one of the elders said to the Chinese evangelist, I'm so sorry. Nobody really responded, only this little girl, and she's not, unfortunately, going to be able to do anything. But Eleanor went out, and she went out there, and she was assigned to 14,000-foot-high mountains, and the Kimyel tribe, which was kind of small, and they said, wow, she's small like us. And they called her bad legs. They said, we have people with bad legs, too. And they adopted her, and they started carrying her around. The warriors would carry her on poles and a chair that she could sit in, and as she learned the language, she became the MS, God's emissary for the good news of salvation to the Kimiel people. One of the most amazing videos you can watch as it relates to Bible translation is if you Google Kimyal Bible translation, K-I-M-Y-A-L, just an amazing story. A third surprise, the mission, the messenger, is the response. Have you noticed reading Jonah, how all the pagans are like prepared for the message. I mean, those sailors on the boat, they asked all the good questions. Who are you? What people group are you from? Who is your God? What should we do? And they didn't want to throw him overboard. And it says later, they feared God and they worshiped and made sacrifices. And it's like, even on his journey of trying to avoid God's mission, God was bringing Jonah into encounters with people who desperately needed to hear and were responsive to the gospel message. And then here's one of the most amazing statements in the whole scriptures, the Ninevites believed God. The Ninevites, from the king on the throne to the paupers in the street, put on sackcloth and ashes and believed in God. And all through the scriptures, it's amazing how God has prepared people for the arrival of the gospel message. And God is at work around the world today, brothers and sisters. All around the world, the 1,500 or so languages in and around the island of New Guinea where I grew up, virtually almost none of them had the gospel when I was taken there as a kid. Very few, if any, don't have the gospel today. China, Robert Morrison, after serving there for 30 plus years, probably had three converts, but he had translated the Bible into their language. Today, 150 million Christians. Africa in 1900, 3% Christian today, 60% who at least claim the name of Christ. 542 million people. 170 years ago, on a single believer in Nigeria, now 100 million Nigerians claim to be Christians. In Lagos, there's a church that can seat 120,000 people. The fifth largest can seat 30,000 people. Kenya has the highest percentage of evangelicals at 50% in the world, and the U.S. comes in 15th at 28 or whatever percent. And this is because of missions, and it's because of how God has used unlikely servants and taking them, taking them to places like Korea, which was considered impenetrable for decades and decades, but now is sending 25,000 missionaries of their own, and there are 7,000 churches in the city of Seoul alone. The center of gravity has shifted. And guess where it is today? It's in Timbuktu. Started in Jerusalem. <laughs> and if you were to take the, the followers of Christ from all around the world, where's the middle? It's right out there. And from here to Timbuktu, we often say, right? 
And it's just amazing what God has done over the years. One in 10 Afghans that comes to Greece finds Christ in the process. I've seen them being baptized. Who would have thought that the Ayatollah Khomeini would be God's instrument to see Iranians become one of the most responsive nations in the face of the earth? There's six Iranian Persian churches in Seoul, Korea. They're coming to Christ in Indonesia and all around the world, one of the fastest growing churches in the world. God's word is becoming available. One church in Brazil is aiming to send 400 missionaries to Southeast Asia. One church I have partnered with in Korea has sent 170 fully supported missionaries. One elderly woman, after I shared some of these kinds of things, and believe me, I could keep going, God's spirit is on the move, said to me, you know what, I've been giving and I've been praying for years, and only this morning have I realized it's been so worthwhile. God is working. Those seeds, those sacrifices, those prayers, that time spent, that mentoring of young men and women, the praying that my grandchildren would go into the harvest, God is working. And today, brothers and sisters, lift up your eyes. The harvest is ripe and ready to be reaped. So the final, <clears throat> the final surprise is, I think the biggest challenge for God wasn't so much the Assyrians, the emperor sitting on the throne, it was the heart of Jonah. And as much as he knew about God, his heart still wasn't fully, fully aligned. Should I not have compassion for this great city? And brothers and sisters, that is probably the challenge for us in our day as well. The harvest is ripe. The resources are more than enough. If only God's people would be fully mobilized for the mission that Jesus left his disciples to accomplish over the next period of time. I carry in my pocket this little uh, puzzle piece, oftentimes, as a reminder that my life is extremely small in the scheme of things. God's big plan is huge, it involves billions of people, and that it's unique. Theoretically, at least, there's not a pu another puzzle piece in a puzzle quite like it, and my life, my gifts, my background are unique. But thirdly, it's really crucial. Have you ever come to the end of putting a puzzle together as a family and you realize, hey, there's a piece missing? And you're looking all over the floor and then the, in the, the cracks in the couch to say, where did that puzzle piece go? Don't let your piece of the puzzle be the one that's missing. When we gather with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob pretty soon at the wedding feast of the Lamb and celebrate the fulfillment of God's promise to them 4,000 years ago, all nations on earth will be blessed through you and your seed. Amen. Amen. Heavenly Father, thank you for the privilege of knowing you, but we pray that we won't be cul-de-sacs. We pray that we will be freeways. May we take the literal freeways here in Dallas and in Texas and the U.S. and make them an image in our hearts of how you have intended us to be gospel freeways to all the unreached people groups of the earth. In Jesus' worthy name we pray, amen. amen. Thank you. God bless you.